Well, uh, last week we started our sermon series in Acts uh, by not spending a whole lot of time in Acts. Uh, Last week, what I was hoping to do was sort of introduce to you the reason why I thought it was important that we were going to spend this time in Acts. And in large part, it's because I think that there are times, I don't think, I know, there are times when I'm tempted to be afraid about the future of the church. And I think uh, we live in a time when I'm not the only one that feels that way, that um, American Christians in general have good reason uh, in terms of trends to be afraid about uh, the future of the church. And, and we talked about um, some of the factors that contribute to that, both inside and outside of the church. Um, I, I'm afraid about the health, the future of the health of the church because of some of the things that are going on inside the church. Um, we talked about the drift that's going on, but where off to a hot start. Um, <coughs> authentic, genuine, biblical, robust, orthodox Christianity, as Jude three calls it, the faith once for all delivered for the to the saints. That's the future. It's the future of that Christianity that I'm worried about, and cultural Christianity seems to be drifting further and further. From that, And so we have this sort of flimsy, weak, quasi-Christianity that fits on bumper stickers and is um, just not really robust. And as cultural Christianity becomes more and more that and drifts further and further away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints, I'm worried about the future of the health of the church. I'm also worried about the mission of the church, the impact that we're going to have as our culture becomes increasingly post-Christian. More than ever, we need the really true, full, robust, full-strength Christianity to preach to the world, to preach to our societies. It becomes more and more post-Christian. Unfortunately, what we have inside the church is increasing quasi-Christianity that is flimsy, and that doesn't do well in mission when we're trying to um, evangelize and, and, and um, impact a society that's increasingly post-Christian. We spent a good amount of time last week looking at um, statistics and trends that seem to bear all this out, that these aren't just fears, that these things are actually happening in American society and in the evangelical church. But at the end of the sermon last week, and I hope this was clear, even though we have, in terms of human trends, good reasons to be afraid about the future of the church, the future of the church does not depend on trends The church is not built on trends, it's not built on human movements, it's not built on culture or politics or sociology. The story of the church is the story of what Jesus continues to do. God is alive and well and active and the future of the church depends on what God continues to do and God will build his church. That's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. That though maybe the reasons we have to be afraid about the future are different now than they were back then, if we think we have reason to fear, the disciples had reason to fear. And yet, God built his church. The story of Acts is the story of what Jesus continues to do. So, while we have some reason to be afraid, we can take great hope and be encouraged by the fact that God does not depend on us. He does not depend on trends. He does not depend on politics. He does not depend on culture. He does not depend on polls. He is faithful to do what he said he'll do. And so, that's the reason why we're going to go through Acts. I think that it helps us deal with that fear that we're facing. Now, the rest of the time, as we go through this series, 
uh, we're going to focus on several episodes through the book of Acts that illustrate how it is that God built his church, and we're going to hopefully draw principles away from that. But uh, before we embark on that journey today, where we spend some time looking at a longer episode, the first episode we're going to look at in the story of the book of Acts, I want to give you a little bit of background information about the book of Acts itself, because we didn't have much time to do that uh, last week. Now, for some of you, uh, this is information you know. For others, I don't want to assume you know what the book of Acts is, so before we get into it, I want to introduce it a bit. Uh, There are five narrative um, books in the New Testament, the four Gospels and the book of Acts. And uh, when I talk about, this is just sort of a disclaimer, when I talk about narratives or stories, especially if I use the word stories, sometimes that word has a connotation with fiction. And of course, the New Testament isn't fiction, the New Testament is is the truth. So um, if you hear me talking about stories and acts, I don't mean that um, to imply some sort of fiction. This is true history. This all really happened. There are five uh, New Testament uh, story books narrative books, the four Gospels, and Acts. Uh, And the four Gospels basically all cover the same period of about three years. In Luke and Matthew, we get a little glimpse into Jesus' childhood, into his birth. But for the most part, the four Gospels all cover the same period in history, about A.D. 30 to about A.D. 33, from four different points of view. For the most part, we get Jesus' public ministry. That's what's contained in the four Gospels. Well, Acts picks up where that story ends, and extends through a good portion of the first century. So the book of Acts starts in uh, A.D. 33 and ends in the mid-60s. So you get about 30 years of time in the book of Acts versus about three years uh, in the Gospels. And uh, the book of Acts being history is obviously organized chronologically, roughly. You go from the 30s to the 60s. But one of the cool things about the book of Acts is um, the way the book of Acts is organized is actually geographically, and and Jesus sort of lays out the structure for the book of Acts in... um, chapter 1, verse 8, when he tells the disciples that they'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in chapters 1 through 5 in the book of Acts, we get the story of the church being built in Jerusalem, which is a city in Judea. Then uh, in chapters 6 through 9, that expands to Judea and Samaria, which is roughly the area of the promised land. The gospel expands. Then in chapters 10 through 12, Um, what happens is a shift from the gospel just going to Jews to now goes to Gentiles, to non-Jews, still in the area of Judea and Samaria, but the gospel spreads to non-Jews. And then 13 through 28, the second half of the book, is about the gospel spreading all over the Mediterranean world. You have Paul's three missionary journeys, and uh, in a long extended story at the book of Acts, you have Paul's um, arrest in Jerusalem and uh, the circuitous route he takes to get through Rome while he's uh, imprisoned and shipwrecked and things like that. But at the end of Acts, what we have is Paul in Rome freely preaching the gospel. So the story of Acts is really the story of how the gospel expands. It starts in Jerusalem, extends to the promised land, then extends to Gentiles, and then extends throughout the Mediterranean world. And that is the story of the book of Acts. Now, Luke wrote Acts, and as I said briefly last week, uh, Acts is the second volume of a two-volume work, Luke-Acts. The two of those go together. Um, As you remember from last week, Acts 1-1, Luke says, uh, in my first book, well, the first book is Luke. The two of them go together. And um, the last thing to note about Luke, and this goes to what I was saying before, is that Luke is actually really good history. That's one of the things that's sort of remarkable about Luke and about the Bible in general, is that the more we know about history, the more these things end up being confirmed. Um, Now, now this is happening slowly, but over the course of the last 150 or 200 years or so, um, the Bible has come under a lot of scrutiny, 
and a lot of people with agendas have tried to disprove it um, and, and to regard it as myth, legend, things that aren't actually true. But what's happened now in more recent history is the pendulum has happened to start to swing back in the other direction. And as we've gotten new and better information from archaeology and things like that, we find out that Luke is actually a really good historian. I mean, apart from the fact that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, secular people are increasingly impressed by how good a historian Luke is. For example, he gets things like place names right. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but um, think about Elmwood Park, right? Elmwood Park is a village. That's right. Elmwood Park is a, not a town or a city, right? Someone from Elmwood Park would call Elmwood Park a village, not a city or a town. And, and uh, Elmwood Park, the leader of Elmwood Park, is a president, right? Uh, Skip is a president, right? So Elmwood Park is a village, and it has a village president. Well, someone from there would know that, but someone not from here wouldn't know that, someone who wasn't careful. Uh, no one would call Rahm well, hopefully no one would call Rahm Emanuel the president of Chicago, the president of the town of Chicago. Someone like that wouldn't know what they were talking about. Well, Luke gets that sort of stuff right all throughout the Mediterranean world, and he didn't have Google. So um, it, it's really impressive that he's able to get these place names right, these leaders right, with the right titles, the right names. And as we find out more and more about history, we think, wow, Luke really did his homework. He really knew what he was talking about. He was right about these things. So when we read these miraculous stories in the book of Acts, we're not reading myths or legends or exaggerated tales that are meant to inspire us in some way. These are true facts about history, which makes them all the more remarkable. Okay, so all that being said, uh, let's start this time in Acts. Please turn in your Bible to uh, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at a rather long story this morning. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 1, I want to tell you a little bit about the way stories work. Not to insult your intelligence, but just to make clear uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing. So a lot of times, and and we see this in movies a lot, um, a story doesn't have an explicit message. It's sort of built in. It's, It's embedded. It's bound up in the story itself. And you see this in movies all the time. They don't come right out and say what their message is. But if you watch a movie, a lot of times you'll see clearly there's a message. Addison, my daughter, is almost two. She's watched Zootopia like 5,000 times since in the last week. And uh, Zootopia is a kid's movie about a bunny and a fox fighting crime. But Zootopia has a message, a serious adult message built into that movie. It doesn't come right out and say it. But if you watch it, if any of you have seen Zootopia and studied it as diligently as I've had the chance to, there's, cre- there's clearly a message in Zootopia, even though it doesn't come right out and say it. And that's the way stories work. Well, the same thing is true in the Bible, where a lot of times the Bible doesn't come right out and say what the story is. But if you read the whole story, you can kind of see the message that's bound up in the whole thing. So this morning, we are going to read a long story in the book of Acts. And I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it through from beginning to end. It's Acts 1.12 all the way through to 2.47. And what I'd encourage you to do is just listen, if you'd like. Sometimes reading can be distracting. This can be like story time, like you're back in kindergarten or third grade or whatever it is. And I just want you to listen and hear the story. Listen for the message that's built into the story. We're not going to break it down verse by verse. We're going to look at this story as a big picture. So um, the verses are going to be up on the screen. Obviously, you've got pew Bibles. Those are going to be in a different translation than what I'm reading, so it's probably all the more distracting. So really, I'd encourage you to just listen. If you want to close your eyes and you think you can go six or seven minutes without falling asleep, you're encouraged to do that. Um, But just listen to this story as I read it, and then we're going to go back and break it down a little bit. So Acts. You got a head start, but I'm a pastor. I should do it fast, right? Okay, there we go. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. 
And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadelma, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, My camp is become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus was in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go in his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to, to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, who said, They are filled with new wine." But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of, Naz- of Nazareth, a man arrested, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom whom you've crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So the beginning of Acts, we looked at last week. Jesus is with his disciples for 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven. And the disciples aren't really sure what's happening at this point. They devote themselves to prayer in Jerusalem, to patience and waiting. They replace Judas with with Matthias. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. They speak in tongues so that The people there can hear in their own language as they testify to the mighty deeds of God. And Peter gets up to preach this sermon. He says, uh, of course we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. This is the Holy Spirit. This is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And then he preaches the gospel and 3,000 people come to faith. They're cut to the heart. I love that phrase. And thereafter you get this scene of... um, the ongoing season in the church, the people devoted to one another, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, 
And day by day, uh, people were added, people were being saved. Now, the most miraculous part of this story is certainly Acts chapter 2. You could sort of say that the whole story is Acts chapter 2, but I've decided to start in Acts chapter 1. The reason why is because even though I think the most miraculous part of the story is certainly what happens in Acts chapter 2, I think the most significant human activity in this story happens in Acts chapter 1. There we see that God uses faithful, obedient people. By including Acts chapter 1 in this story, we see that God uses faithful, obedient people. Now, we Christians like to say, and this is absolutely 100% true, that God uses messy people. And the story of the Bible is the story of God using messy, fallen, broken people. People like us, people we can relate to. That's another great thing about the Bible is that we can relate to the characters. And again, these are real historical figures, but we can relate to them. They're real people who had struggles like us. Abraham was used by God in an awesome way, but Abraham certainly had his own moral failings and adultery. Jonah's a great character to illustrate this because Jonah just can't seem to make up his mind. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and he goes in the exact opposite direction. He disobeys and runs west. And eventually, through a storm and through (laughs) spending a few days in a fish, he comes to his senses and repents. And the remarkable thing about Jonah is he goes and does exactly what God tells him to do in Nineveh. He, He obeys. But then, when God does what God does, Jonah is so angry with God that uh, he says he wants to die. Paul was a great man and and used in great ways, but as we're going to see later on in the book of Acts, Paul was a violent and vigorous persecutor of the church. Paul oversaw the stoning of Stephen and was very active in trying to find and kill Christians and destroy Christianity. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28 says, For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. That's the story of the whole Bible. And that is good news for messy people like us. If like Abraham, you've had moral failings, or if, like Jonah, you disobey God or you're angry with God, if, like Paul, you've got a past, or if you've got all of those things, God can use you. That's what God does. That's the whole story of the Bible, is God using messy, broken people. But, as true as that is, that's 100% true, it's 100% good news. That truth is not licensed for us to go on sinning. I'm afraid that sometimes we think about that and say God uses messy people, and that's an excuse to just stay messy, that that's the totality of it, that you're qualified for ministry based on how messy you are. The closer you get to Paul before he was Paul, when he was Saul, the better you're prepared for ministry, and that's not the totality of the picture. Abraham, Jonah, Paul were messy people, but they were also faithful and obedient people. God said to Abraham, get up and leave this place and go to the land that I'll show you. And he did. After waiting literally decades for his promised son, God said to Abraham, you need to sacrifice that son. And Abraham was willing. Jonah, for all his anger and everything else, eventually did exactly what God told him to do. One of the cool things about the book of Jonah is Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches word for word the sermon that God told him to preach. 
Paul, of course, had a terrible history, but Paul's life is a life of incredible faithfulness. So, while it is absolutely true that God uses messy people, and that's good news for people like you and I, it's also true that God uses faithful and obedient people. Now, I want to clarify something at this point when I, when I use the word use. What do I mean when I say God uses people? Because technically, God will use us whether we are faithful or not. God is going to use you whether you're faithful or not. What I mean by that is there's nothing that you or I or any person can do to thwart or change God's plan. It's not as if if we're not faithful and obedient, God's stuck up in heaven saying, well, I've got to go back to the drawing board and come up with something new. We cannot thwart God. We cannot force him to change his plans. He will use us whether we're on board with him or not. So the question isn't whether or not God is going to use us. The question is, do you want to be Peter or do you want to be Judas? Do you want to be Peter or do you want to be Judas? Think about Judas for a minute because God absolutely used Judas. God used Judas to accomplish one of the most, the most significant event in human history. Judas betrayed Jesus, but Judas did not thwart God. God used Judas' disobedience just as much as he can use your obedience. So even if you are just as disobedient as Judas... Even if you betray Jesus the way that Judas did, you cannot thwart God. You cannot force God to change his plans. In his infinite sovereignty and wisdom and power, he will use even your disobedience for his plans and purposes. They cannot be changed. But Judas was not on board with God's plans. You see that? So when I say God uses faithful and obedient people, of course, God uses all people. God knows what you're going to do before you do it, and God's able to do it. We can't thwart him. We can't stop him. We can't get him to change his plans and purposes. But do you want to be Judas or do you want to be Peter? Now, Peter was not a perfect guy. Peter had his own issues. Peter's most famous probably for denying Jesus three times while he was under arrest after bragging so strongly that he would never do that sort of thing. A few hours later, in front of a little girl, no, I don't know that Jesus guy. I have no idea who he is. Peter's not a perfect guy. But in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Peter is among the disciples who do exactly what Jesus told him to do. Go to Jerusalem and wait. When you want to be impressed by God and what he can do, look at Acts chapter 2. It's an amazing story of what God can do. Acts chapter 2 is not a story about what humans can do. Acts chapter 2 is a story about what God can do. He works in miraculous ways to do miraculous things. But if you want to know what we need to do to be on board with what God does, look at Acts 1, 12 through 14. God uses faithful and obedient people. Now, I think that's actually really good news for busy people living real lives. Because I think that there's this misconception, or it's easy to have the misconception... That if you are going to be used by God, if you're going to be on board with his plan of redemption, if you're going to have a life with purpose and meaning, that you've got to get busy being more religious, doing more religious activities. You've got to waste less money on dates with your wife, waste less time doing the things you enjoy, give up your hobbies, give up your activities, stop with the entertainment, and you need to start doing things like learning Latin and going to church more and doing more church things and kneeling on rice and you need less fun and more religion. That's the key to being a mature Christian. I, I don't think that that's the case. I think what we need to do to be on board with what 
God is doing is do what the disciples did in Acts chapter 1, 12, verses 12 through 14. Devote yourself to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And that happens in the day in and day out of your real life. Devote yourself to the Word of God. Devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to blocking out the noise and the distraction every once in a while so you can hear God and you can learn to discern the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, you've heard me say this a lot, and I think this is really true and really important to get. The great thing about having a relationship with God is, everywhere you go, there God is with you. You don't have to be in this place. You don't have to be in a certain place in your home. You don't have to be at Silver Birch Ranch or Camp Iwana or some super spiritual place. Everywhere you go, there God is with you. When you're getting ready for work on Monday, there God is with you. When you're driving home on Tuesday, there God is with you. When you're taking the kids to who knows what on Wednesday, there God is with you. When you're at work and you're frustrated by your, with your boss, there God is with you. So everywhere you are, you can do this. You can have a faithful, obedient abiding relationship with Jesus Christ everywhere you are. God is already there. You just have to acknowledge it in the same way you would if you had a friend with you all the time. Sometimes your conversations are going to be lighthearted. Abiding in God is going to be as simple as um, enjoying with him the things that you enjoy in your life, laughing with him when you laugh and making lighthearted observations about things that bring you joy. Other times, You're going to have to have real, serious, deep conversations, just like you would with a friend as you go throughout your life. Wherever you are, there God is with you. Act like it. That's what that is. And that is what puts us in the position with being on board with what God is doing. When we make that sort of relationship a priority, then all the other things sort themselves out. If you devote yourself to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, where you devote yourself to his word, you devote yourself to prayer, you devote yourself to recognizing that wherever you are, their God is with you, and so you just have to talk to him. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. Wherever you are, their God is with you. Just talk to him. When you devote yourself to those things, then these other things take care of themselves. If you watch too much TV, God will tell you. You'll know. If there's a ministry that you're supposed to be involved in, you'll know. If there's an activity you're supposed to do, you'll you'll know. When the time is right for ministry with your family, you'll know. You have to put these sorts of things first. And we can't get so busy doing things for God that we forget our relationship with God. God will accomplish his plans and purposes whether you choose to be Judas or Peter. But if you want to be on board with what God is doing, you need to devote yourself to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with God just like the disciples did in Acts chapter 1. Now, the temptation of this story is to think that the story of Pentecost is some sort of formula for automatic effectiveness or quote-unquote success in ministry. That if I devote myself to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship in Christ, the same way uh, Peter and the disciples did in Acts chapter 1, that the success in Acts chapter 2 comes. It's, It's a formula. It's automatic effectiveness in ministry. But we have to remember that God uses faithful and obedient people in his time, in his way, and for his purposes. You have to remember a lot of things about this story in order to not miss this point and think that there's some sort of automatic formula going on. First, I made reference to this last week, but I really think it's significant. The disciples were not expecting this to happen. In Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Uh, The disciples said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Even after spending three years with Jesus, 
what they thought as good Jews is that when the Messiah came, he was going to be a physical ruler, that he was going to drive the Romans out of Israel, and that he was literally going to sit on the throne of David and rule as a king. That's what they were expecting. Not at the beginning. This is after spending three years with Jesus, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, and then spending 40 days with him after his resurrection. Their expectation was still that Jesus was going to be the Messiah they expected him to be, which was a physical ruler and king, a conqueror. But that's not the way it worked out. When, he, when, they, when they said to him, are you going to take over Israel now? He said, no, just go to Jerusalem, wait, I'm leaving. Now imagine the confusion at that point. I, I don't know what their state of mind was at that point, really, but they certainly didn't know what to expect. And yet... They were faithful and obedient. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. And they waited. They devoted themselves to prayer. I think the fact that they didn't really know what was going on and they probably had no idea what they were expecting makes their faithfulness and obedience all the more exemplary. They didn't know and they did it anyways. Devoting yourself to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with God is not a way to get God to do what you expect. It's a way to get on board with his plan. Devoting yourself to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with God is not a way to get God to do what you expect. It's a way to get on board with his plan. Now, this day of ministry was effective, and it was the start of a season of effective ministry. Not only were 3,000 people saved on the day of Pentecost, but as we read at the end of Acts chapter 2, day by day, more and more more people were getting saved. And so the temptation is to think, okay, this is what's going to happen. But for every day, In the life of God's people that's like the day of Pentecost, there's a day like the day in the life of Jeremiah, who was a faithful preacher who proclaimed the truth of God to the Israelites for a lifetime and saw very, very little fruit. None. No one responded to his message. For every day, like a day of Pentecost, there's a day like we'll see in the lives of Peter and Paul, where in response to the gospel message, they're beaten, they're flogged, they're imprisoned, they're stoned, and they're run out of cities. We just don't know when and why God's going to do what he does. Devoting yourself to a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with God is not a way to guarantee ministry effectiveness. It's a way to get on board with his plan. Another sort of odd thing about this story that I like is that um, there's some time that passes between when Jesus ascends and Pentecost, probably about 10 days, we don't know exactly, but probably about 10 days between the time when Jesus ascends into heaven and the day of Pentecost happens. Why? Why 10 days? Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit come as soon as Jesus went into heaven? Or if God, for some reason, wanted uh, the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost, why wouldn't Jesus just stay for another 10 days? He'd been there for over 33 years. Why wouldn't he just stay another few days? You know what the answer to that question is? I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. Read the commentaries. If you've got study Bibles, they might have speculations. I have no idea why 10 days. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His timeline is not our timeline. I have no idea why God, in a lot of, ten, in a lot of senses, I have no idea why God chooses to do what he does when he does it. But having a faithful, obedient, abiding relationship uh, with God is not a way to get God on your timeline. It's a way for you to get on his I don't know why 10 days, but God decided 10 days. The story of the church is the story of what Jesus continues to do in human history. The church is God's church 
The future of the church depends on God, not on us. As a matter of fact, there's literally nothing that you or I or anyone can do to thwart God or to change his plans. Whether you decide to be Peter or you decide to be Judas, God is going to use you to accomplish his plans and purposes. The question is, do you want to be on board? By his mercy and grace, he gives us the opportunity to do that. We have the opportunity to be on board with, to participate in God's project of redemption. He doesn't need us, but he will use us. So, will you do what, you, what needs to be done to get on board? Acts, the story of Pentecost is a remarkable story, and Acts chapter 2 is miraculous. It's wonderful. It's a story of what God can do with his people. But the more mundane, boring Acts chapter 1 is the more significant thing in terms of what humans do. Faithfully devote themselves to obedience and to abiding relationship. Will you devote yourself to that faithful, obedient, abiding relationship with God so that you can be a part of his good plans and purposes?